Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I'm recording today's podcast from my hotel room in Vancouver, Canada. I'm up here for a couple of days at a resource conference. And actually, I left Las Vegas. I'm at the Las Vegas Money Show. I was there yesterday. I'm going to be back there again tomorrow for another talk. So I actually had to fly from Las Vegas up to Vancouver, then back down to Las Vegas uh, to do both these events. And then on Thursday, I'm flying to Puerto Rico for another conference before heading back uh, to Westport, Connecticut uh, for the summer, where I'm spending most of the summer. But I was on a panel yesterday in Las Vegas at the Money Show, and it was uh, moderated by Mark Skousen. And one of the guys on the panel with me was Gary Schilling. And I've been arguing with Gary Schilling for a long time. There's plenty of um, you know YouTube videos or of, of me and Schilling over the years uh, arguing. He's basically a perma bull when it comes to U.S. Treasuries. I mean, he's always bearish on the stock market, and he's always bullish on the bond market. Now, for a while, he was right to be bullish on the bond market because we've had a huge bull market in in bonds. But the bull market appears to be over, yet Gary Schilling is as bullish as I've ever seen him on the U.S. bond market. He's also bullish on the dollar, which is also something he's always bullish on. I guess if you're always bullish on bonds, it helps to always be bullish on the dollar because bonds are IOU dollars. So it's hard uh, not to be bullish on the dollar if you're bullish on bonds because if you're telling people to buy bonds, you're telling them, in effect, to buy dollars. 
And so he's always been bullish. And obviously, sometimes he's been right. Sometimes he's been wrong. Uh, but now I think it's one of the times where he's dead wrong. In fact, one of the points that he made that I challenged him on on the panel is he started talking about China and he said, you know, the Chinese would never sell their U.S. treasuries because if they sold them, the prices would collapse and they would be destroying their own portfolio. And so therefore, they're not going to sell because they don't want to destroy the value of the assets that they're trying to sell. And I pointed out to Gary, maybe he never stopped to consider this fact, was that the Chinese don't have to sell any treasuries to get out of them. They simply have to let them mature. Then it's not China that has to sell the treasuries, but the treasury that has to find a new buyer to replace China. See, if China was dumb enough to own a lot of 30-year government bonds, then they would have to find a buyer. They'd have to put those bonds on the market if they wanted out. Otherwise, they'd have to wait 30 years for the bonds to mature. So in that case, if you try to dump a 30-year bond on the market, well, then you might affect the price. And in fact, if you're China and if you, and if you owned a trillion of 30-year bonds and you did try to sell, the price would collapse. So if that were the predicament that China was dumb enough to put itself in, then maybe Schilling would have a point. But China may be dumb, but they're not that dumb. They own a lot of T-bills. So they're going to mature 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever it is. They don't have to sell anything. They just ask for their money back. Then they sell their dollars, which are a lot easier to sell than treasuries. But now it's the treasuries problem because now they have to find an alternative buyer to sell the bonds that the Chinese didn't roll over. Because if they don't find another buyer, how are they going to give the Chinese the money? I mean, the only way they can do it then is to get the Fed to be the buyer, right? Which it may end up being. They have to take the bonds that the Chinese used to own and the Fed has to buy them. And then the Fed creates money out of thin air to pay the treasury for the bonds. And now the treasury can take those newly created dollars and credit the account of China because now the bonds paid off. But that's massive inflation, right? That is the Federal Reserve monetizing the debt that the Chinese uh, no longer own. If they're not going to do that, then the only other way for the Treasury to get the money is for the Treasury to go and sell bonds. But now the Treasury destroys the bond market. That doesn't matter to China because China's letting everything mature. It's the people who still own the bonds or own longer term bonds that have to worry about selling. And selling in the bond market is what a lot of people need to be worried about, but very few people are. I mean, the bond market got clobbered today. It was one of the Biggest down days of the year. The yield on the 10-year Treasury now at 3.08%. The high of the day, intraday, was 3.095, so almost 3.1%. The 30-year closed just over 3.2, 3.209. But again, if you look at the gap between the two, this is the lowest I've seen it. You're looking at, what, 130 basis point difference? between a 10-year government bond and a 30-year government bond? I mean, to me, I mean, it makes no sense. Why would you go 20 years further out on the curve, right? What are you getting for 20 years of extra risk, 20 years of extra inflation risk, extra interest rate risk? And what are you picking up? Instead of getting 3.08%, you get 3.2%, 100, 120 to 130 basis points extra yield, that is it. 
And the way it's looking, who knows? I mean, maybe the curve is going to invert. Maybe the 10-year yield will actually get higher than the 30-year yield. We got up to almost three and a quarter. 3.224 was the high on the 30-year. The now, the Dow Jones was only down 193 points. Not very much. I mean, I didn't see it down much more than 200 at the lows. And the fact that the Dow was only down 200 points is a big problem if you're long the bond market. Because what normally puts the brakes on a bond market decline is an even bigger decline in the stock market. See, once the stock market really starts to get pounded, then there's a, a flight to supposed safety into the bond market, or maybe some people start connecting the dots and think, wait a minute, the stock market is tanking. What if the Fed has to come in? What if there's a Powell put in play? How is the Fed going to put a halt to the decline in the stock market? Uh, maybe hint that they're not going to raise rates or that they're going to do more QE. And so that would put a bid into the bond market. But that didn't happen. Bonds sold off. Stocks were down, but they weren't down a lot. Not enough to cause anybody to want to buy bonds. So bonds are going to keep falling. And if you look at the chart right now, it looks horrific. In fact, to me, we just kind of broke out of a consolidation where yields were kind of going sideways in a continuation pattern of the previous up move. So I would say that we've now broken to the upside in yields. And I would say a move up to maybe three and a quarter in the 10-year is going to happen very quickly. I mean, it could even happen this week. It could even happen tomorrow, right? But I think we're going to see a faster acceleration of interest rates now that we have broken out of this, this bullish chart pattern, bullish on yields, bearish on, on prices, right? It works the other way for the price of bonds. Bond prices are falling as bond yields are rising. But as I pointed out in my last podcast, the traders in the market still don't get what this means because the markets are reacting to this increase in long-term interest rates and drop in bond prices by buying dollars and selling gold, right? The dollar index was up today, up uh, 0.63, not on the high of the day, but you know, pretty much uh, close enough to it. Back above 93 now on the dollar index. Gold was down 20 bucks. Uh, in fact, gold is now back below 1300 $1,292, I think, is where we went out approximately. This is the low for the year, for this calendar year, for the price of gold. Gold stocks holding up much, much better, down a bit today, but we haven't even taken out the February lows. In fact, we haven't even taken out the March lows. The February lows were lower, but we're not even taking out the March lows, even though gold itself is at a new low for the year. Again, I pointed this out before, when gold looks like it's going to break out, the gold stocks don't confirm it. But every time gold looks like it might break down, the gold stocks don't confirm that either. In other words, gold stock traders are betting that gold is going to stay in this range. They don't believe gold is going to take off, but they also don't believe it's going to get killed. They think it's going to be range bound. Again, my thinking is that they're wrong in that it's not going to stay rage bound. I mean, they've been right so far, right? I mean, gold didn't break out much above 1350. And we'll see if they're right again, that it's not going to hold the breakdown below 1300. I don't think it will either. But I do think ultimately, gold is going to break and it's going to break to the upside because people are going to figure out that what is happening with interest rates 
is negative for the dollar and bullish for gold. Again, what is the rise in interest rates going to do to the economy? It is going to undermine an economy that is based on credit, based on debt, right? Because the cost of financing all the debt that everybody has is going up. Look, I just read an article that we're now seeing the biggest uh, foreclosures in the subprime auto market that we've ever seen, even bigger than in the 2008 financial crisis. That is one symptom of what happened during the credit bubble. And now, you know, the, the heroin is starting to wear off and it exposes all of the bad loans uh, that fueled uh, the, the spending binge on automobiles. Well, a lot of other bad things are going to happen as a result of the backup in interest rates, least of all, to the federal government, which is loaded up on debt. And a lot of the creditors, like the Chinese, have a lot of short-term T-bills that are maturing, and now the Fed has to pay higher interest rates uh, for those bonds. So the deficits are getting bigger, right? So if our fiscal deficits are going to be bigger because the interest to finance them is higher, and that higher interest rate doesn't just affect the new borrowing that is taking place today, which is, by the way, enormous, but it um, reflects all of the past borrowing, right? All the debt that has to be rolled over if somebody decides they don't want it, right? They Or even if they do roll it over, they, they roll it over at the prevailing rate, not at the low rates that may have uh, been in place when they bought initially, right? Somebody bought a two-year note a couple of years ago, Right. Well, they're going to get a lot more right now if they roll that note over. But that means the U.S. government is going to have to pay that note holder a lot more today than it's been paying them over those over that two year time period. So the increase in the fiscal deficits is negative for the U.S. dollar because bigger deficits mean we have to borrow more money. I mean, that is always a negative for the currency. If a government has to borrow more, if it's running bigger deficits, that is negative for the currency. So you have rising interest rates putting upward pressure on the fiscal deficits and also putting downward pressure on the economy. Growth is going to slow down as interest rates rise, especially if artificially low rates were what was creating the so-called growth. And now you are removing that fuel. In fact, it's not just fuel. You're just now building barricades, you're now applying the brakes, right? It's not like you're, you're not just not stepping on the gas, you're stepping on the brakes, right? Not that I you know, like to use that car analogy because that's the analogy that the Keynesians always use when it comes to how the government can, uh, you know, can, can stimulate the economy, which it can't. But the analogy is more appropriate here when you've already artificially stimulated stuff uh, with cheap money, and now you are removing that cheap money, not only in just raising rates, but in theoretically shrinking your balance sheet and the Fed, you know, looking to unload a lot of the bonds that it took off the market, right? If you're going to increase the supply of bonds, that's another basic economic, uh, you know, uh, relationship. As supply goes up, what happens to price? Well, unless demand goes up, price goes down. Well, demand for treasuries is not going up. But the supply of Treasury sure is, and that's one of the reasons why the price is going down. Now, maybe Gary Schilling is still bullish. I don't know on what basis he's remaining bullish. Maybe it's because he just assumes that bonds have been strong for so long 
that they'll continue. Now, he is bearish on the economy. He is bearish on the stock market. So probably what Schilling also thinks is that when the economy rolls over and the stock market rolls over, that the Fed is going to be able to successfully do what it's always done in the past, and that is lower interest rates to try to stimulate the economy and prop up the market. And so maybe he's betting on that. My bet is the same in that I believe they're going to try that. I believe they're going to go back to that well, assuming it's going to work. But of course, it's the only well they got. Whether it works or not, that's what they're going to do. But I think it's going to blow up. I think the next time the Fed tries to stimulate the economy with cheap money and rate cuts and QE, that the amount of QE that they're going to need because of the enormity of the problem and the hangover is produced, that it's a lethal dose. I think it's impossible. I think the next time it backfires and the bond market collapses, despite the fact that the Fed is buying bonds because the dollar collapses first and nobody wants dollars. But right now, the head fake move is this rally in the dollar. Right? People are doing the wrong thing. And in fact, if you look at it, and I talked about this again on the last podcast, the emerging market currencies are the ones that are getting beaten up the most because of the strong dollar, because the strong dollar puts downward pressure on emerging market economies because they borrow in dollars, but it also puts upward pressure on their inflation rates because it makes all dollar-denominated commodities more expensive. Look at what's happening with the price of oil. Oil actually hit a new record uh, price for the year today. It almost got to 72. We got up to uh, the high, I think, was 71.95, so almost 72 a barrel. We did surrender the gains. I think we closed up only maybe a nickel or so, but still above 71 cents on a day that the dollar was strong across the board. So what that means is that oil prices are really going up in terms of other currencies, particularly these emerging market currencies that are getting beaten up right now. So their inflation rates are picking up. uh, Their interest rates are, are rising. They're being pressured up by a weakening currency and by um, increased uh, inflation expectations. But all of this ultimately awaits the U.S. dollar because it's America that's ultimately going to be put in this position because inflation is going up here too. Yes, maybe oil prices are rising more slowly now in dollars. But remember, the dollar was down a lot last year as oil prices were rising. And I believe that this rally in the dollar is a bear market rally for all the fundamental reasons I I just explained. So as the dollar begins to fall, then oil prices are going to go up even faster. Because if oil prices are able to rise now while the dollar is rising, imagine how much stronger oil prices will be when the dollar is falling. But it's not just the U.S. economy that is in jeopardy because of increasing interest rates. What about the U.S. stock market? We still have that big drop in February that likely ushered in the end of the bull market and the beginning of the bear market, except everybody doesn't know it's a bear market yet. They still think it's a correction. But as interest rates rise, that correction is going to turn into a bear market. In fact, people are going to realize that the rally that we've had since the February lows, that was the correction that the move down is the new primary trend, right, which is the bear market, and the upward move was the correction in the bear market. I mean, if you look now at yields, right, even the short-term uh, treasury bills, 
the yield on Treasury bills now is actually higher than the yield on the S&P 500. Now, what is that telling you? Right? You could get a higher yield buying risk-free U.S. Treasuries than by buying the stock market. Right? Now, of course, I don't believe that Treasuries are risk-free. I think they're, 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 they're full of risk. Right? But the conventional wisdom is that they're risk-free. Right? Because there's no default risk, right? The government is going to pay you for sure, right? So if you buy U.S. Treasuries, you're guaranteed to get your money back when the Treasuries mature. So there's no risk of loss, right? There may be risk of uh, purchasing power loss because of inflation or dollar depreciation, but there's no risk that the government's not going to pay you, at least in theory. It's possible they could default, uh, but people say that that's, you know, they're going to just say that that's never going to happen. I mean, it's never happened, even though it has happened, right? The U.S. government defaulted on its promise to pay dollars, to pay gold, rather, for its currency. That was a default. When you had a Federal Reserve note, it was an IOU. It was a promise to pay you a dollar, and the U.S. government defaulted on that promise. So there is a history of default. People just are ignoring that or they don't understand it. But let's assume, for the sake of argument, that Treasury bonds are risk-free, well, why do you get paid more money to hold something that has no risk than what you get paid to have something that has risk? Because clearly the S&P 500 has risk. Nobody would describe the stock market as being risk-free, right? There's plenty of risk in the stock market, right? And what you're supposed to get for assuming risk is a yield, a return, right? And the more risk you assume, the higher the yield needs to be to compensate you for taking that risk. I mean, it's very obvious when it comes to the bond market, right? If you look at a, a quality bond, a AA rated bond, right, a high quality investment grade bond, the yield is going to be lower than on a junk bond, right? Why do junk bonds pay higher interest rates than investment grade bonds? Because there is a greater risk of default that you may lose, right? And so why would anybody take extra risk if, unless they were going to get paid an extra return. Otherwise, everybody would just buy treasuries, right? The reason that people buy corporate bonds and junk bonds is because they're paid a higher rate of return for assuming that extra risk. Well, the same thing is true in the stock market. There is risk in the stock market, right? I mean, in fact, especially if you buy common stock, right, you are the riskiest uh, position in the corporate structure because the bondholders get paid first, right, if there's a bankruptcy, uh, and then the preferred stockholders get paid second, right? And then the common stockholders get paid less. And of course, before any of the stockholders get paid, I mean, there's other people that get paid. Employees get paid, right? If they're old wages or suppliers or landlords, there's all kinds of bills that have to get paid. I mean, basically, the only way the common stockholders get anything in a bankruptcy is if everybody else is made whole. Everybody has to get paid off first. And then if there's anything left, okay, the common stockholders can have that. Right? So there's a lot of risk there. So how are stockholders compensated for risk? Well, they're supposed to be compensated with a dividend, right? You get paid a yield, right? Okay, you're getting paid, uh, you know, you're taking this risk. Well, if the yield on the S&P 500 is lower than the yield on T-bills, what are you getting paid for taking risk? Nothing. You are actually paying to take risk because you are giving up the yield that you could have had, right, on a risk-free treasury, to buy the S&P 500. So you are actually paying money to subject yourself to risk, especially now when the U.S. stock market is in the stratosphere based on valuations, based on how high the stock market is 
relative to the earnings of the underlying companies, relative to the size of the U.S. economy. I mean, you look at any chart that measures stock market valuations, we're either at all-time record highs or tying an all-time record high. So stocks are very expensive. That means they're very risky. Yet at a time where stocks are very risky, you're actually getting less compensation for assuming that risk than what you would get if you just parked your money in the risk-free uh, treasury bill market. So obviously, rising interest rates are going to increasingly make the U.S. stock market vulnerable to a big decline. So a weak stock market, a weak economy, what does that mean the Fed is going to do? The Fed is going to have to reverse course on monetary policy. They're going to have to indicate that they're not going to tighten as much as the market thinks. And if that doesn't work, they're going to have to say they're not going to tighten at all. And if that doesn't work, they're going to have to go back to QE or they're going to have to cut. And remember, we've got elections coming up in November, right? And Trump is very much aware of that. Uh, Powell is very much aware of that, right? Powell is now on Team Trump and he wants to help his boss uh, get more Republicans in a Congress, right? What are the what are the Democrats threatening to do if they get control of Congress? Impeach the president, right? So they really need to hold on to Congress. I mean, he's going to try to hold his hat on maybe some foreign policy accomplishments. Maybe something goes well in, in Korea. He takes credit for that. But that may not be enough because people vote their pocketbooks more than they vote uh, a foreign policy. Most American voters don't even know where Korea is, uh, let alone that there's a North and a South. Uh, and, and so that's not going to be what they're going to be voting on. So as the markets begin to sense what higher interest rates mean, right? as traders sense what it means for the stock market, what it means for the economy, because two, people are getting two things wrong here. One, they still assume that even though rates are going up, they're not going much higher. That is a foolish assumption. If you actually believe that the Fed's going to keep raising rates and you believe that they're going to shrink their balance sheet, why on earth would the 10-year yield stop at three and a quarter? Why would it stop at three and a half? Why would it stop at four? Why would it stop at five? It wouldn't. Rates have to go way up. Look, rates are going to be a function of supply and demand. And if we're going to have record supply of bonds, we've never had a national debt this big, right? We've never had $21 trillion of outstanding bonds. We're about to be running annual deficits that have never been this large. The Fed is going to be shrinking its balance sheet, in theory, something it has never done, and its balance sheet is enormous, right? So you're going to have a record amount of supply of U.S. Treasuries. Plus, you know, remember, all the Treasuries that were sold last year and two years ago and three years ago that mature all have to hit the market. So the new issuance of Treasuries is off the charts unprecedented. So that's the supply, massive supply. Where's the demand? Well, there's not a lot of demand for Americans. Savings rates are near all-time record lows. So Americans are broke. They're not exactly going to be gobbling up all these treasuries. You know, the Japanese don't want to buy. The Chinese don't want to buy. The Russians don't want to buy. The Saudis don't want to buy. Who wants to buy? I mean, I would imagine that demand for treasuries is falling at the same time that the supply of treasuries is skyrocketing. So why, if all these things are happening... Why should interest rates still be so low? Remember, a 4% 10-year would be low by historical precedence. But why should rates be low when the supply and demand has never been this out of whack 
where you have an enormous supply. Rates should be higher than normal. If you have a lot more debt than normal and you have to sell a lot more bonds than normal, right, then you should have to pay a much higher rate of interest than normal. The only reason that rates got so low was because the Fed was doing all this quantitative easing and the Fed had got interest rates stuck at zero. That's what kept them low. If the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, if the Fed is raising interest rates, then what's stopping interest rates from rising? Nothing. So they're going to keep on falling until the Fed changes. And the other mistake that the markets are making is that they are underestimating how much damage the increase in interest rates is going to do to the economy, to the stock market, to the federal budget. So they've got all that wrong. But at some point, I think some point soon, people are going to start you know, connecting these rather obvious dots. And then dollar is going to go down, uh, gold is going to go up, and there's going to be even more pressure on the stock market and more pressure on the Fed to try to come to its rescue. You know, also, finally, I mentioned, you know, Trump and the politics. I was talking to a, a client of mine today who was uh, transferring out his account, and I called him up to talk to him about it. And one of the things that he said, or one of his reasons for wanting to transfer, was because he said that I was being too critical on, on Donald Trump. And he was a, you know, he listens to my podcast and he's a Trump supporter, and he didn't like the things that I was saying about Donald Trump, which I thought was, you know, not a very, you know, good reason. Maybe he has other reasons too for wanting to close the account. But I thought I'd bring it up because I know I've been critical of Donald Trump, and I'm critical of people who blindly support Trump, right, just because they voted for him or because they like some of the things he says or some of the things he used to say or because they don't think he's a typical politician and they're just blindly supporting him. That's a mistake. You know, I supported Donald Trump as a candidate. He wasn't my first choice, right? I wanted Rand Paul, but I supported him, right? I supported him when the Access Hollywood, I did go back and listen to the YouTube video or the podcast that I made supporting Trump when a lot of Republicans were running away from him because of Access Hollywood. I came to his defense because of that. And I voted for him. And I said I voted for him. So I did support him as a candidate and I supported him over uh, Hillary Clinton. But does that, that does not mean I blindly support him now. You know, just because, you know, you've got to earn my support. You've got to earn it with deeds, with actions, right? Not just your words, right? And what Trump has done as president does not deserve my support. Has he done some things that I could support? Sure. But overall, am I happy with Trump as president as an American citizen? No, right? If you voted for Donald Trump because you wanted smaller government, that's not what you got. You got much bigger government. The government is bigger now than ever before. We're spending more on welfare. We're spending more on the military. We're spending more on entitlements. We have a much bigger government today under Trump than we had under Obama. So if you voted for smaller government, you didn't get it. You got bigger government. Did Trump even try to make government smaller? No. He did absolutely nothing. He talked about it, but he did absolutely nothing to try to bring about smaller government. Now, you know, when Trump was a candidate, I pointed this out. He talked about how the government statistics were phony. If you like that aspect of Donald Trump, well, now the statistics aren't phony anymore, right? Well, it's the same statisticians. 
if the unemployment rate was really 40% uh, two years ago, there's no way it's only 4% now. Trump didn't, you know, reduce the unemployment rate from 40% down to four. So, you know, if you believed or liked Trump as a candidate, he is the opposite as president. He is everything he criticized. He's doing all the things that he was critical of Obama of doing. That's, that's what he's doing. You know, a lot of people voted for Trump because they thought they were voting for somebody who wasn't a politician. They were wrong. Trump is a great politician. He just didn't have a lot of experience. See, people thought he's going to come in there and drain the swamp. He's going to shake things up because he's not a politician. He is a politician, right? He's just a politician who's only been in politics for a couple of years, right? So he's a new politician and he's just been very successful at politics in a short period of time. But the difference is Trump is not doing things to make America great. He's doing things for his own political agenda, just like every other politician has done. That's why the swamp is still there. The fact it's, it's deeper than ever. Maybe some of the swamp creatures are different, but in essence, they're the same. And the swamp has not been drained because Trump is governing like a politician. That's why he talks differently. That's why all of a sudden uh, the stock market's not a bubble. Now it's a bull market because he's in, he's the incumbent. He told people what they wanted to hear to get their votes. And now that he's president, he's telling people what they want to hear to get more votes. Because now he has to talk about how great the economy is. Why? Because it's his economy. He can't be critical of the economy anymore when it's his. He wants to run on his accomplishments. So now he has to talk about how great the accomplishments are, even if he hasn't accomplished anything. The harder thing to have done would have been to have admitted the problem and then actually ask the voters to swallow the bitter tasting medicine that would actually make the economy healthy again in the long run. But that's not something a politician could do. No politician wants voters to sacrifice. Politicians want to play Santa Claus. That's what Trump did with the tax cuts. Santa Claus, giving everybody free money, right? It's something for nothing. That's the, the, the Republican version of a free lunch, just giving people tax cuts without cutting government spending, without making government smaller. And so the other reason, too, that I'm so critical of Trump is because I understand the damage that Trump is now doing, not only to the Republican Party, because I'm not as necessarily that loyal to the Republican Party. I mean, I ran, when I ran for Senate, I ran as a Republican, uh, but I mean, philosophically, I'm more of a libertarian, right? But, you know, I'm not going to get, I had no chance of getting elected as a libertarian. Not that I had a chance of getting elected as a Republican either, but I guess it was somewhat less remote. Uh, so I ran as a Republican because I'm closer in general to Republicans than Democrats, right? Because the Democrats now are basically socialist. And if they weren't before, thanks to Sanders, that's exactly what they are now. But not only is Trump going to damage the Republican brand, he is going to damage everything that the Republican brand is associated with, whether you know it should be or not, like less government, fewer regulations, lower taxes, you know, free markets, rugged individualism, sound money, you know, all this stuff is going to be discredited with Trump when the economy tanks and he gets the blame. Right? And all these blue collar voters who, you know, Reagan Democrats who came now and voted again Republican for the first time in 20 or 30 years, and they voted for Trump, when, when they're in even worse shape than they were when they originally voted for him, when they didn't get their great job back, when America is, isn't great again, they're not going to vote for a Republican. 
Trump is going to do more damage to the Republicans than George Bush. And remember, George Bush is the reason that we had Barack Obama. Right? The economy blew up. Did, did, did Bush start the bubble? No, it started under Clinton. But Clinton got out of Dodge. And the bubble blew up when Bush was president. Now, Greenspan was able to blow some more air into his own bubble and buy Bush a second term. But that bubble blew up in 2008. And so he wasn't able to get another Republican elected because now the Republicans were blamed for the financial crisis and the Great Recession. But now Obama comes in and the Fed under Bernanke and Yellen and now Powell, the mistakes that were made under Greenspan's successors were much bigger than the mistakes Greenspan made. I mean, Greenspan's mistakes were puny compared to the ones that have been made after he left. The bubble is much bigger now. The damage to the economy is much greater now. And the worst part about it is that bubble did not burst yet. So President Obama made it out of Dodge. Now Trump is there. Trump is going to inherit the whole mess. There's no way that he is going to not get, you know, get out of office because even if he gets reelected, meaning that the bubble doesn't burst uh, before the 2020 election, which I think is a long shot. But let's assume we make it to 2020 without the bubble bursting. Does anybody think we're going to make it to 2024? I mean, there's not a chance in hell of that happening, but I don't think there's even much of a chance of us making it to 2020. But regardless, this gigantic bubble that was inflated by the Federal Reserve after Greenspan left and mainly under the, the two terms of Barack Obama is going to burst under Trump. And it's going to be worse because the guy that's going to re, that's going to follow Trump is going to be worse than Obama was, right? Because Obama was the payback, right? That was the difference, right? We tried Obama because um, Bush didn't work out and he was hoping change, right? Vote for me. I'm going to change things. And of course, nothing changed. Everything remained the same. And then Trump came and said, oh, vote for me, right? I'm going to, I'm going to make America great again, right? I'm going to change things. I'm not a politician, right? I'm, you know, I'm different. And then people gave him a try and that's not going to work. So the next change that people are going to vote for is socialism. It's going to be capitalism doesn't work. It's been proven not to work. It was proved under George Bush. It was proved under Donald Trump. We all know how that game works. Tax cuts for the rich, deregulation, greedy corporate bankers, whatever it is, destroy the economy. And Bernie Sanders already laid that foundation. He's already created that groundswell. He's already legitimized socialism, right, by campaigning as a socialist, by, by making socialism seem not so bad, seem mainstream, seem acceptable. So this next collapse is going to, you know, make it possible for the socialists to take control of the White House and the um, both houses of Congress. So that is why I want to be critical of Donald Trump. Right, because I am critical of what he is doing because I understand what the consequences are going to be. The problem is all the people out there that want to remain blindly loyal to Trump, no matter what he actually does, and want to just pretend that it's great, you guys are part of the problem. This is what I was telling people back on CNBC when I used to be allowed on, and I was on Larry Kudlow's show all the time, and he had all these Republicans on there, and I was saying, look, you guys are talking about how great this Bush economy is. It's a bubble. It's going to burst, right? This is a housing bubble. And when it falls apart, you're going to have no credibility 
uh, because you were all, you know, telling everybody how great it was. That's what's happening now. All the people who are getting behind Trump and saying how great everything is, right, how his policies have worked, how we're making America great again, when everything falls apart, you've got no credibility. You've got no ability uh, to to propose a solution because you've already been discredited. See, I'm, I'm preserving that. I was able to criticize the Republicans, George Bush in particular, when the uh, financial crisis happened and when he did TARP and the bailouts because I had criticized him the whole time. I was critical of him while the bubble was inflating, right? I didn't wait till after it burst. So when the market collapses, when the economy collapses under Trump, right, well, I'll be, you know, I'll have some credibility. Unfortunately, there's only one of me, right? And since I'm not on CNBC anymore or, or CNN or MSNBC or Fox, none of these shows that used to have me on have me on anymore. So there's really nobody out there um, in, let's say, the, you know, the Republican sphere that's actively critical of the president. Everybody's afraid to criticize the president. Everybody wants to jump on this Trump train. He can do no wrong. And so that means when it goes off the rails, there's nobody left that can offer an alternative. So that leaves the, the, the you know, wide open for the left to come in, right, and completely blame capitalism, uh, free enterprise, a lack of government, deregulation, tax cuts, because there's nobody who also advocates these things that was critical of the president, that was critical of his policies. Right? That's my point. And hopefully I don't lose too many clients as a result of taking a principal stance, because I always take my stance on principle. And I know, look, I got a lot of clients who voted for Trump. Right. The vast majority of my clients are obviously Republicans. They're not Democrats. Doesn't mean I don't have any Democratic clients. But, you know, if some people get pissed off because they don't like the truth, you got to take a long look at the mirror. You got to think about that. Why? You know, why is it that I don't like it? Because I'm critical for the right reasons. I don't like it when you see the left criticize the president for the wrong reasons. Right. And I, that, that happens all the time. There's a lot of criticism that Trump doesn't deserve. That's not the kind of criticism that I dish out. I criticize Trump when he deserves to be criticized, and I criticize him for the right reasons. And it's always important to do that, especially if you want to have any kind of credibility when it hits the fan. If you want to be able to offer a credible alternative, you can't be part of the problem in the past if you want to hold yourself out as part of the solution in the future.